Welcome everyone to the November 9th, 2017 edition of the Science Fiction Book Club and the next to last uh, edition for this year. And as we've been doing for the last few months, we are bringing our own books. And so we'll just go around and see what people have read this month or last year or whatever book they decide to come up with from 20 years ago or whatever. So here we go. Well, I guess I'll start first. I reviewed portions of having read this book four million, four jillion times, but I just love it. It's The Book of Strange New Things by Michelle Faber. Michelle is a um, an Englishman. M-I-C-H-E-L-E is how he spells his first name. When I first saw it, I thought it was Michael, but it's pronounced Michelle. And Faber is F as in Farsight. <laughs> F-A-B as in boy, E-R. And the book concerns a planet off in somewhere in the universe somewhere that was discovered by an organization called USIC. Nobody knows what that stands for. It's a huge corporation, very secretive. And they interview people to go to this planet and live there. And apparently the intention is to get the best of humanity off of Earth, which is falling apart, unfortunately. Not the planet, but the societies on Earth are, are getting pretty bad shape and one of the people who was interviewed to go to this planet is a pastor in a British, I guess it would be a Protestant church. It doesn't have to be Protestant, but it might well be. And he goes to this planet, and the reason is that the natives there who live very simply, and I wouldn't want to say primitive, but there's no technology there except for low-tech, they insist on having a pastor come to them and read the scriptures. And he doesn't do a lot of preaching or anything. It's just they want to hear the scriptures read. And I must admit the author treats Christianity with a great deal of respect, which I'm grateful for. Um, the author of the book is an atheist, but he treats everybody in the book with a great deal of respect. And so it involves this pastor's ministry on the planet. However, he is getting um, email from his wife on Earth, and she is describing to him how Earth is just disintegrating culturally and economically and everything. And so there's this big conflict between is he going to stay on this planet or is he going to go, uh, go home. And it's a book that it involves... A lot of stuff in a lot of very detailed ways. You get pages and pages of, of the pastor's past, which was as a drug addict and an alcoholic, and so he came out of that into his beliefs. And at the same time, it involves the other people who live in this huge building where the Yusik people are staying, and they have to, in exchange for the pastor being there, the aliens also need medicine because some of them are, are dying of some kind of strange illness. It's not really described. They don't have immune systems, so if they get 
injured or they get sick, it's inevitable that they're going to die. So the fascination for me was the alien culture. I was drawn to that. I was absolutely fascinated. And those are the parts of the book that I have read and just kind of poured over and said, why do they do things this way? Why do they do things that way? Why do they build the buildings that they do in the way that they do? And they rely on a certain type of flour to pretty much get their food, get their building materials, um, get the cloth that they use for their clothing, um, mostly boots, because um, they're in a, a rather humid, desert-like planet, and they have to, um, they could probably walk around in their bare feet, but uh, they use boots, um, the aliens do, and uh, they have robes that are different colors that they wear, and that's how the humans tell them apart, because the aliens are always wearing robes that are um, chosen, I guess, for them by their parents. And so, just a fascinating book to me. I just really um, couldn't get out of it. Um, there is a lot of profanity in there. One of the scenes at the very beginning is a sex scene between the pastor and his wife. So, it's the kind of thing that a lot of Christians probably would not want to read, but I know of some who have read it and been fascinated with it, who um, like science fiction and are interested. So... Anyway, that's the book. It's called The Book of Strange New Things. And the reason it's called that is because that's what the aliens call the Bible. They don't want to refer to it as the Word or the Bible. They call it the book. So that's that. I thought it was the holiday season coming up, so I thought I would mention this book. 19 hours and something, and it's a commercially available book. Well, this is Sherry. I hope you can hear me. Um, I finally have a book that I like. Um, I read The Voices of Heaven by Frederick Pohl. It's about 10 hours, and it's kind of a light read. Um, this guy, Barry, ends up on another planet, and he does not really want to be there, but he makes the best of it. The book is narrated in first person by him, and because of the way the narrator doesn't differentiate voices very well, it takes a while to figure out that he is being interviewed. And as part of the story, you, you later come to realize who's interviewing him. And it's interspersed with chapters where he's just describing his life and what's going on. The planet's pretty interesting. It was settled by a bunch of different religions, everything from Baha'i to this new religion. I think they're called millennialists, millennialists or something like that. But in any case, they believe that it's a sin to be alive. So they don't believe in having children and they do sanction suicide, and they, in fact, one of their saints is Jim Jones of Guyana fame. So, you know, they aren't, um, they're pretty, they're the dominant religion. So this planet is not doing too well. They're in an area that has a lot of earthquakes. They're a little bit low on supplies. They get a lot of help from a group of aliens called LEPs who are intelligent and sort of caterpillar-like but don't understand humans at all, but are willing to help out when they can. And I, I really like the book. It's only about 10 hours long, but I found it very satisfying. Is that on Bard? Again, it's The Voices of Vision by Frederick Pohl, and I think it's Fred Ulrich, but I'm not sure. Probably if you just search Voices of, or Voices of Heaven, I'm sorry, Voices of Heaven by Frederick Pohl, and I don't have the DB number, but it is on Bard.
I think that's P-O-H-L, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. Um, I think it's on my TBR list, which grows exponentially. Um, I read the latest in the Honor Harrington World series, um, The uh, Shadow of Victory, which is where... Well, I can tell you the the plot in about one sentence and also tell you that it the darn thing is 33 hours long, or nearly 34, and I kept saying, good heavens, you know, uh, David, would you just take out about three quarters of this whole thing? Um, you know, you could have managed to... Uh, have this happen in about eight hours. But anyway, um, it's the story of how the Manticorans and the uh, Republic of Haven finally get together and they decide to go after the people that have been manipulating them all this time. And so before they can do that, they have to go through all these various... um, uh, planets that are uh, allied, well, were allied with the the Solarian League, and they and they have to, um, you know, they have to liberate the people. So you get all this yammering about politics from these various uh, planets and revolution and all this rotty rah, which I felt didn't contribute to the story, but. I'm sure he felt it did. Um, I am almost at the end, and of course it is now becoming very interesting because it's finally winding up. And since I like David Weber, I stuck with it. And I, But I do have to say that unless you are familiar with uh, the whole Honor Harrington scene and her life and the life of her friends and so forth, this book would make absolutely no sense to anybody. So, um, if I were going to rate this book, I'd say it's probably three out of five because it's so darn long. And it could have been cut at least by half, I think. Um, and, as I say, you, you really do have to have read all the books in the series because otherwise it would not make any sense at all to a new reader. So, um, caveat, if you're planning on reading this book, make sure you know uh, the world and the characters and all that before you start plunging into this 34-hour long book. Okay. Um... I tried to read a series of short stories called, with the main title, Galactic Empire. And I got through about four stories and then just gave up. Um, you know, usually I can find one one or two short, short stories that pique my interest. None of these really did. Um, the first one was kind of interesting. It 
concerned this couple that were like oh, 20,000 years old and they decided to die but they just want to do one more thing and that is try and understand an, a race or a society that's at the center of the galaxy that won't let anybody in they call them the aloofs so they go by radio waves they're converted in their thought processes are converted into radio waves and they go to these various planets um, and I kind of lost track of what was going on uh, the other good one was by oh, Brandon Samuelson or Sanderson the guy that finished off the Wheel of Time um, this cloned guy who thinks he's the brother of this famous war hero um, is trained but he keeps losing and his brother always wins and finally um, they get together and the losing guy has to fight the winning guy and he does and he wins and that was kind of interesting but then I just lost interest. Um, I'm kind of switching over to nonfiction books anymore. That um, first story you mentioned sounds like a Greg Egan story I read once, and I don't remember how it turned out either, but I remember that. Um, that does sound like a Greg Egan story, but now I can't place it. But I can Google it and find it, I'm sure. All right, I guess it's my turn. I want to first comment on the fact that, Mary, I read that book too, and I can the way you were talking about, I enjoyed it very much. Especially, I liked the way the he imitated the way the aliens talked, and also the way many of them took um, Christian names like Jesus, twelve or thirteen or something like that. So, I, I thought it was a pretty good book. Okay, the book that I read was called "The Empire of the Ants" by this French author Bernard Verdet. It was translated from the French to English, and it, I thought it would be a very interesting book. It it has two parallel plots going on. On one hand, uh, it describes the life of the ants. They're intelligent and they're able to communicate with each other using their, their hormones or whatever the ants use. And it describes their cities and their interact and their wars with each other and, and how they harvest food. And then it alternates with this family who went in France, in Paris, who went to an apartment who was owned by a very eccentric uncle. And this uncle died. And the uncle said that they should never go down into the basement, and they had the doors sealed. And it turns out when they, when the dog went down, they had a dog and a dog somehow got down and disappeared. They started going down a basement and disappearing, and it turns out that they were, they were, I don't know whether they were eaten by rats, but eventually they found out that they learned through the uncle's writings. He wrote an encyclopedia, and he discovered how to communicate communicate with the ants by learning to use their chemical signals and the survivors, those who went down, ended up living in like a, a separate chamber uh, directly under one of the major cities of the ants and they were able to carry on a, a communication with them. The ants provided them with food and everything. It was, it's rather interesting. The ending was a little strange. I didn't quite understand totally the ending. They, they had, There was one couple of ants that were the chief, uh, chief characters that were going on explorations to try to go to the end of the world, and the end of the world, there was some huge thing that was killing the ants or squashing them, and I didn't quite figure out what that was. 
But all in all, especially for a person who, who likes insects like I do, I thought it was a very interesting book. Well, I thought it was a great book, too. I read it many years ago, and I have it on my book sense. I have it on my SD card. And uh, I'm going to read it again. Unfortunately, it's the first book in a trilogy, and I'm not even sure the second and third books were translated, but if they were translated, NLS never bothered to record them. I don't think they were ever translated, because I tried looking for them, and uh, I'm not even sure I could find them in the original French anymore. That's right. I remember that. Right, yeah. And the first book was a major big seller, though. I think it sold like two million books or something, according to Wikipedia. So I don't know why the third, second and third books were never translated. That's uh, quite a mystery because, I mean, and, and aside from the plot, he did a great, <coughs> sorry, he did a great job of putting you into the environment of the ants and making you feel what it felt like. I think Martin would agree with that. Definitely. Maybe that explains also why the ending was a little inconclusive because apparently he was planning on carrying it on. I didn't know that he had written uh, a sequel to that. Well, um, I decided to read this book that David reviewed last month and um, because he said it made his head hurt, I thought that sounds like something I want to read. And no offense to David, I used to use Tom Easton like that, the old analog reviewer. When he said something was too far out or too something, you know, far futuristic or, or whatever, I said, that's got to be something interesting. i got to try it. Because he was kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of stodgy, I thought. Anyway, um, so I read this book, Altered Starscape, by Ian Douglas, and it's on Bard and on Bookshare. And it's the first in a series called the Andromedan Dark series. And it does have some flaws, which I'll get to. Um, but I enjoyed it immensely, and many be many people did. It had some ne- a, a fair number of negative reviews, but uh, and I understand some of the criticisms, which I'll get to briefly. But I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, now, I had some qualms at first, and I still do a little bit, because this guy has a history of writing uh, military SF. He's written a couple dozen previous books, and they're all kind of military. He is an ex-Marine, if I remember correctly. Um, but um, he, in this book, he is, the, the book is, has got lots of sense of wonder. Um, there's quite a bit of hard SF in it, though some of it is, as um, scientists call, hand wavium, which means you kind of wave your hands and say, this is how it works, without a lot of uh, rigor. But, but there was definitely some, there was definitely a hard SF feel to the book. And anyway, this, there's a, uh, a ship, it's a giant O'Neill colony ship. There are two ships, well, uh, um, joined together at the, at the um, whatever at the top or whatever the whatever you call that thing uh, by the by the bridge and they're like thirty kilometers long each. There are a million people on both of them together, and they're going to the uh, center of the galaxy where the capital of the Federation 
is, which we call the coagination in this book, which Ian Douglas calls human. This is twenty-one. This is the early twenty-fourth century. I'm sorry, twenty-second century. It's like twenty-one twenty-five or something. And so, um, the humans have met the aliens. They had a crude star drive, which let them go faster than light, and the aliens detected them. They didn't detect them earlier because uh, we're out here in the Orion Spur and um, stars are fewer and farther between out here, and we just didn't—they just didn't notice us right away. But there's lots of aliens out there, and most of them are in this coagination, this big federation. And there's some real aliens out there. He talks about some of them. There's some on board the ship, and um, so the humans are being asked to join the coagination, but they're involved in a kind of conflict with some people called the deniers, and. <clears throat> Of course, most of the humans are enticed by the technology that the coagination is offering, but the commander of this mission, Grayson St. Clair, is suspicious because he doesn't like the idea of human beings signing on to take sides in a conflict or a war that we don't know, we can't even understand what it's about. Um, so, anyway, they're going to the center of the galaxy to... Um, meet, uh, go to the capital city and do some cultural exchange. There are a lot of humans aboard. There's some aliens who are going to be exchange, and then some aliens are going to come back to Earth to study, to study humanity. And but something happens. Uh, they get to the center of the galaxy and they make a, an interstellar jump. Um, but when they get there, they find that the capital city has been destroyed and they're moving at much too high a velocity. They're supposed to be a deceleration field to slow them down when they get there. So they graze the black hole at the center of the galaxy, Sagittarius Star A. And, of course, it's huge, like 4 million solar masses or so, so the tidal effects aren't too bad. But they try to keep from going into the black hole and they apparently don't go in too far. But when they come out, they have been sent four billion years in the future, and he talks about how that can happen. You know, there are a couple different ways. Um, he throws all kinds of stuff in this book. Um, the capital city is made from a bishop ring, which is a kind of uh, long ring that spins up in the open face, you know, like the gravity is achieved by the spin, and you can populate, you know, with millions of people you know, on the inner surface of the ring. And um, then they come out four billion years in the future, and Andromeda is very close to the Milky Way. And almost as soon as they come out, they are uh, attacked by some uh, very advanced ships, um, which they are lucky to beat off because they're not very big ships. They're much more advanced, but they're not very big. Then another alien ship comes to meet them, and it's a huge. It's like the size of Titan or something, or um, my, uh, one of the Saturn's moons, whatever. A few hundred kilometers. No, not Titan. Um, and it sends a, uh, a ship, uh, a probe, to meet the ship, and uh, apparently it's designed for communication. But they decide to leave the galactic core because they want to see what's going on, and in in, you know because they haven't realized they've gone in so far in the future. Anyway, I'm taking too long. The point is that there is a much greater threat to humanity, 
and and the rest of the aliens. They find an alien race, you know, in the far future, and um, but there's not a lot of military action in the book until near the end. Um, it's you know he's got all kinds of you know mega structures. They find an alternate Alderson disc, which is uh, deserted. Uh, they can find alien ruins on it, and then they find um, another. They find another alien. They actually find a living alien civilization that's uh, a Dyson swarm. He explains all these things. Um, it's he, he, and sometimes a little more, a little more than you want, perhaps. Uh, it's not a character book. The, the military commander Grayson St. Clair's uh, the only real, you know, really well-drawn character. There's some others. Uh, one of the interesting, the, the second most well-drawn character is actually an android, um, because androids have gotten pretty intelligent by then, and she's kind of a companion to him. She's kind of like his wife, um, only they're not technically married, and. There's actually some thought here about what happens when AI gets to a sufficiently high level. I mean, do we give these androids rights? And, you know, he talks about the singularity. And, of course, in the future, you know, races have gone through multiple singularities. And there's AIs and there's, you know, other alien megastructures. They go to the Andromeda galaxy to see if they can find out where this enemy is and, you know, where it originated. And... And they find this huge megastructure, and you know, orbiting a star, and they explore it, and that's kind of fun. And they do get attacked there, though. By the way, there's a little military action there. And then I'm not going to spoil it. There are some prizes. There are some prizes here. I've seen better writing. I mean, the writing's not, you know, great. I've seen worse, but um, but I enjoyed it immensely, despite some of the criticisms that, that I've pointed out. Um, it's not a real character-driven book, but, if, you know, not everything has to be about people, I don't think. I think that's kind of... Uh, anyway, I won't go into a rant about that. But if you want something with a lot of sense of wonder and some military action, but not a whole lot, and a little bit of thoughtful questioning about the future, this might be for you. Yeah, I think I started to read that book at some point. I think it was after David recommended it, and I never really got through very much of it, I guess for lack of time or something, but it, it's still in my um, in my mind is one that I would like to read. So thank you for all that, Evan. That was interesting. Oh, and if you're on Bookshare, the second book is coming out on November 28th. Now, I like Joe Williams, and I might decide to wait for Bard to get their version up. Um, they're coming out with books faster than they used to, um, so I might wait and see who narrates the second book, but I don't know. I might not be able to wait that long to find out what's going on uh, in the second book. It's coming out from HarperCollins on November 28th, so it'll be a publisher-quality book. Yeah, it's surprising that more publishers, especially Tor and some others, aren't getting into Bookshare because, man, then we really have a lot of science fiction yeah, I know. Tor seems to be a holdout. I'm not sure why. I think there's one or two publisher-donated books. I mean, they know about Bookshare. I don't know how else those books could have gotten up there, but they're not giving their books to Bookshare. That's for certain. Most of them, I mean, hardly any. Well, um, I seem to be coughing and coughing, and so I'm going to... Uh, 
get out of here and seek my bed and see if I can't uh, you know, get done with this coughing fit. I keep having <coughs> keep having these since I've had this cold like two weeks ago. So I'm off. Um, I've enjoyed this. This has been fun, but I've got to run. Bye. Well, since nobody else is talking, see you, Anne. Nobody else is talking. I'm going to mention briefly that Lissy and I read this book called the Weather, called Weather Eye, by Leslie Howarth. It's on Bard too. It's it's a juvenile, and it's about climate change and uh, about these kids who um, um, are in this club. And this one kid, the main protagonist. Her father runs a windmill farm and supplies power to the grid. And one night, the wind is blowing hard, and she goes out to rescue their rabbit. And one of the ro- one of the oh man, what do they call those things? Um, you know what I'm talking about. Things comes breaks off and hits her, falls and hits her on the head. And she wakes up the next morning, and she's not afraid of anything, and she knows how long people are going to live. Like she can say to the day. So, 47 years and 68 days, or whatever. Um, and she's not afraid of anything, and she wants to do something about the weather. So, she has a plan, and she gets together with her Weather Eye Club people and talks about being calm, being calm, and try. Because when she has her near death experience, she sees a giant tree in a meadow, and she's very calm and relaxed. And so, when she gets back to Earth, um, or her body, <laughs> She uh, is not afraid of anything, so and they're, they're worried about concussion, and they want her to stay in the hospital, but she's not having it. She, she says there's too much to do, and the weather is getting worse. So she drives her father's car home with her brother in it, her eight-year-old brother. Anyway, um, I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but you know, they, they, they get together at 7 o'clock every night, uh, or wherever they are. They don't physically get together, and they think calm thoughts and supposedly that's going to change the weather and uh, if you will feel like reading it you can find out we didn't like it very much the kids are not very sympathetic even the protagonist she's very contemptuous of everybody almost she lies to her father about what happened to the car and then lies again and and um, so we uh, weren't very happy with it I was intrigued because they talked about using meditation to calm the weather, but they're really not doing meditation of any serious kind. Anyway, uh, that's our brief note on Weather Eye. Well, I guess that pretty well sums up our review of the book, so I think I'm going to bid everyone a good evening and a good afternoon, wherever you find yourselves, and how much time do we have to read our book for, for the next meeting, Kevin? Well, our next meeting is on December the... Um, 14th, so uh, I guess we have five weeks to read our next book. I have my book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one that I read a long time ago, but I forgot most of it by um, Arthur Clarke called The Songs from Distant Earth. I, th- I think I remember finding it very lyrical, very nice. I'm going to reread that. It sounds real familiar. I wonder if I've read that and just don't remember much of it. Yeah, I I love Clark. He's just wonderful. Well, you know what I what I think of it if I remember it. I'll, I'll wait a bit and read it towards 
when we get closer to the time. Okay, well, our next meeting will be on Thursday, December 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and I will send out a newswire with a list of the books in the next day or two. And uh, so we will say good night and talk to you next month.